CinemaSins has a fan club. It's called the Sin Club, and members get all sorts of things like early episodes, bonus videos, merch discounts, and even monthly bonus podcasts. Membership starts at $3 a month, and you can sign up now at patreon.com slash CinemaSins. The, the sound man would kind of would come up to me like during the day when we're between takes or whatever, and he would ask me like, you on Team Ross or you on Team Boat? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined by Jonathan Watkins. Hello, hello. And Barrett Share. Hi there. And today we have a very special guest. It is writer-director Tiller Russell who has done a movie called Silk Road. Uh, It is uh, coming out, uh, it says here, it says it's coming out on digital on-demand theaters in February 19th, and on Blu-ray and DVD February 23rd. Uh, Tiller, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan, so it's nice to be here with you guys. Oh, nice. You're a fan of us. Good. (laughs) Let's get that out of the way first. Hang on. Something must be wrong. (laughs) I'm turning the tables right from the jump, guys. (laughs) yes you have yes you have um uh so silk road is uh first off it there was an article in rolling stone called dead end on silk road internet crime kingpin ross albrecht's big fall uh is what this is based on it's based on the silk road uh you know you could buy drugs and and uh things on the dark web uh, when were you? When were you first aware of this story, and uh, when did you start writing a screenplay over it? Well, as somebody who spends you know, most of his both professional work time as well as free time combing through crime stories, uh, mm-hmm. both for business and pleasure, I guess I was, um, you know, really geeked on this story from day one. I, I was off shooting a documentary when I remember uh, opening a, I think it was a USA Today article, and it was the day after Ross had been busted in the uh, sci-fi section of the Glen Park Library in San Francisco. And even with the very cursory information that was in the initial reporting on it, I instantaneously had this visceral reaction. A, like there's a movie in there. It may be a doc, it may be a feature film, you know, who knows what, but I was fascinated um, by the story and um, by the by the guy behind it. And uh, you have, uh, you know, Ross Albrecht is a guy who doesn't seem much like a hardened criminal, but he he certainly played the part did he not well it's you know it's this is one of the things that that gripped me from the from the get-go about this it is in a weird way it it seemed kind of very relatable you know here was this you know kid from i'm 10 years older than ross and Mm -hmm. there was this kid that that grew up in texas i grew up in texas you know i grew up as a a kid thinking man i love movies but i don't know anybody in hollywood how am i ever gonna you know become a Mm -hmm. filmmaker um and and, I, and there were these interesting kind of parallels to his to his story. Um, and, and what was, I think, particularly fascinating for me is you get this guy who goes into it as kind of a bit of a naive dreamer, right? He wants to change the world. He wants to make his mark. And, and to me, it becomes a bit of a Frankenstein story almost where he he creates this um, entity, you know, the Silk Road Marketplace, and it becomes you know, a monster that gets out of his hands. And by the end of it, that's what's grabbing him by the throat. And I think that um, fundamental nature of the story is what I found so compelling. And the transformation from this, this guy who went from being a, you know, a dreamer to a visionary, to a gangster, to a legend in you know, less than two years. I I wanted to, I want to get into casting and everything. uh, But um, you know, you, you've cast Nick Robinson, who, uh, a mm-hmm. lot of people probably know from love Simon, uh, in this, uh, but what I thought was interesting was in the article, uh, they show a picture of him and they mentioned that he looks like Robert Pattinson and I would not trade Nick Robinson in this movie for Robert Pattinson, but I did wonder if you wanted to get Robert Pattinson for this movie. You know, I actually had talked, uh, sat down and talked with Robert Pattinson very early on in, uh, at length about it. 
because he mm-hmm. was fascinated by the story as well. Um, and what happened is the you know movies take oftentimes so long from from the germination mm-hmm. of the idea to actually being on set and shooting the film that in some way or another I think he kind of aged out of the part and you know he got busy mm-hmm. with what he was doing I got busy with what I was doing, and 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 to go to the casting for a minute is really interesting. I ended up meeting with um, you know most of the the, the sort of hot up and coming. Uh, young leading men in Hollywood and, you know, a huge range of them because it's, you know, it's an interesting part, I think. Mm. Um, And when I sat down with Nick Robinson, I was instantly captivated because there is this fundamental um, sweetness and vulnerability to him as a human being. And, you know, I knew that... in the course of the film, you're going to take an audience on this, this dark journey. And if you're going to do that, where your where your protagonist or your antagonist is the case may be your antihero, uh, you know, is going to go on this dark journey, you have to be able to emotionally connect with him uh, on the front end to be able to take that ride. And I just found Nick so winning and likable um, that as soon as I sat with him, I was like, that's the guy. Well, speaking of the guy, I mean, this character, I was I was struck by his sincerity about quote changing the world. It's weird there's there's a certain kind of uh, self-effacing thing that he has uh, in the script where he's like this is corny. He'll preface something by saying this is corny, but this is actually what I believe. You know, I want to change the world. I want to, you know, have the one thing, that kind of thing. Uh, how much is that uh, from your personal experience with the actual uh, person behind this, the actual Ross, and and how much of this is, is something that uh, that the uh, the actor himself brought to it? It's it's a great question, and let me address it by by opening it up even further, which is as somebody that goes back and forth between nonfiction films and you know narrative films. Um, this was a very interesting blend for me because what I did was. I approached this initially um, the same way that I would a documentary where you Hmm. are doing all of the research. There was this, this kind of amazing archive, vast and varied archive of material um, that um, painted these different and contrasting and often conflicting portraits of Ross. You have um, his public posts as Dread Pirate Roberts, Mm. uh, you know, on the Silk Road website. You had his diaries, which were on his laptop, which was confiscated after his arrest. (laughs) You had his chat logs, his interactions with um, you know, not the character portrayed by Jason Clark in the film, as well as many other people. So you had this, I had this access to his voice and, you know, 99%, I would say of the voiceover that's in the film is drawn from these sources with hmm. little, no change whatsoever to it, because I wanted to hew as closely to, um, the authentic story and the spirit of him as a human being. And then the other thing was, um, Ross's ex-girlfriend, Julia V, uh, who's portrayed by Alexandra Shipp in the film, was actually a consultant to me uh, in, making the, in making the movie. So in writing the script and in you know, answering questions and pre-production and, and production. So while I didn't have access to Ross Ulbricht himself because he was... Um, you know, waiting appeals after indisposed. <laughs> Although interestingly enough, I, there's nothing I would love more. You know, having spent now years um, fascinated by this guy and thinking about him, when I go to sleep at night or when I wake up in the morning, mm-hmm. I'd really genuinely love to sit down with him now. Um, you know, eye to eye, man to man, and just have a real conversation because I am so fascinated to know what it, you know, what his perspective is like from the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the lo- long-winded answer to your question, which is because of all the, the the sort of documentary materials that exist, we tried to hew as closely as possible to Ross's character, and he and he would use these turns of phrase like corny, and he was this. Um, true blue believer in the, in the libertarian ethos. This wasn't Mm. like a a sort of mask or a charade or a put on. This was what animated this guy in, 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 at the deepest levels, um, you know, according to those who, you know, who knew and loved him in his own, in his own record. So I tried to be as, 
you know, as spiritually true to the story as possible. Yeah. And that's one of the things right at the beginning, it says, you know, the story is based, uh, is based on a true story or is true or whatever, except for the stuff that we made up. Um, (laughs) and I, I I do, I I do appreciate that because I do feel like a lot of times uh, movies sort of skate behind that whole based on a true story, uh, thing and they and they just make up all sorts of stuff but after reading the article that this is based on you didn't do too much making up uh, stuff in this the only thing that I noticed from this is that I feel like Jason Clark's character Nod is the is is basically the uh, what you embellished the most in this yeah his character is a composite there were a couple of um, you know, crooked law enforcement officers, some for DEA, some for Treasury, that were involved in this case. And so what I did was I kind of pulled elements from the, again, uh, from the historical record, where you're taking different p- bits and pieces of these characters and, and what was available and out there, and then combining and compositing them in, into one character, and then, you know, some of the relationships that come off from it. So again, you know, as you as you see the chat logs in the film that are the interactions between Dread Pirate Roberts, um, you know, who's Ross and and Nob, the character played by Jason Clark, all of those everything that's in the, in the written chat logs, all of that stuff is real. There really was a guy called Nob, and, and he and he was involved in doing this. But the the elements of Jason Clark's character, that's the sort of fictitious um, part of it. But even that is drawn from the historical record, or even drawn from. There's a there's an actor named Daryl Britt Gibson who plays Rayford, who's a, you know informant of of Jason Clark's character Rick Bowden, mm-hmm. um, and that stuff is drawn you know as somebody who spends a lot of time with narcs and crooks and informants and and uh, you know people from from the underworld and, and from law enforcement. All of that stuff is drawn from people that I know and and real relationships that exist and. Mm-hmm. And I guess in, in some sense also bits of my own personal biography are poured into those characters. And so it felt important to acknowledge right from the get-go uh, the fact that it's a fusion of um, fact and fiction. I love the line with uh, Jason Clark's character. I mean, this probably comes from you and obviously uh, Jason Clark is a great performance, but I just, I loved the... Um... I love the line that you kind of play with there where, you know, he is a, he is a dirty cop, right? But, uh, but he does have a family. We see that side of him and everything, but at the same time, he does get called out on all of his BS, right? He gets, you know, he, he gets, uh, uh, I guess punished in some ways that, you know, I think some movies would make him the hero in the end. Um, not to give too much away. No, it, it, it's interesting to me. What, what what I guess I'm drawn to as a filmmaker and storyteller, and as a movie go movie lover and movie yeah. goer too, it, you know, generally is stories that have conflicting cross currents to them, and kind of characters who are. Um, in turmoil and in conflict with themselves in some fundamental way. And for me, both of these characters, Jason Clark's character, as well as, you know, the character played by Nick Robinson, Ross Ulbricht, um, these are men that are um, roiling with their own internal contradictions and conflicts. And to me, the fact that they're, um, that they're, um, not necessarily easily likable, you know, sort of uh, winning in every decision that they make. That's to me what makes them compelling characters. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they, there's a a moment, and again, I don't want to spoil anything in the movie, but there's a moment in here where, uh, you know, right after uh, Ross believes that he has uh, successfully uh, put out a hit on somebody, he tells Jason Clark's character, you know, like you, sometimes you have to do a great wrong to make a better right or an even, an even mm-hmm. greater right or something like that. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it's either been a while or I've never seen it where a character who is quote unquote, the bad guy gives basically accidental advice to the good guy who is <laughs> not really the best of good guys, but still it's a it's a it's a piece of philosophy that uh, ends up uh, 
you know, affecting his character as well. It's uh, it's a, I, I love that moment. You know, it's funny for, for me from the get go, the whole notion of the, of the movie was you have these two guys that are, that have these opposing arcs. And I kind of thought about it. Like, it's almost like they're missiles that are fired at each other from far away and they're in their mm-hmm. head right toward each other, you know, and they're exactly the wrong people. Um, uh, you know, f- to be aimed at, and it ends up kind of vaporizing both of these guys' lives. And yet, in a weird way, though they, you know, with one exception, never see each other or in the same place in the same room at the same time. It's all mitigated um, and mediated via the screen. In a weird way, there's this bond between them where it's sort of like it's the only other person that is walking in this in this in this lane or in this you know pathway of darkness, so that there is this kind of weird emotional bond and connection between them. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about the, the casting process. We've talked a little bit about Nick Robinson. We've talked some about Jason Clark. Uh, how did you come up? Uh, how did you find uh, the actors who would be in this movie, which you know has a pretty big sprawling um narrative uh, so you've got a lot of people here to cover well it was i i felt very um lucky and and and, and grateful to have found a um you know an eclectic and colorful and um talented cast everybody from you know Katie Azelton to Paul Hauser to Daryl Brett Gibson to Alexandra Ship. I, I, I felt like I kept getting lucky where it was one amazing performer after another who was going to come in and build out this world. And, and then you saw these people and it was almost as if um, everybody, when you have people like you know, we started the film and we actually shot it almost as if it were two separate films. There was the Jason Clark movie and we mm-hmm. shot you know, all of Jason Clark's side of the film. And then with, you know, a day or two of overlap, um, Nick and Jason, and then we shot the Nick Robinson movie. And so it was almost. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> right. Oh, cool. So so literally that was, that was kind of determinative of the experience of it. And it was funny, you know, people, the, the, the sound man would kind of, would come up to me like during the day when we're between takes or whatever. And he would ask me like, you on team Ross or you on team boat? <laughs> <laughs> and I always would kind of laugh because it was like, okay, whoever we're shooting today, that's his team I'm on now. <laughs> um, that's so funny. But yeah, you've got, uh, you know, the, what is it about Paul Walter Hauser, man? This guy seems <laughs> like he comes out of nowhere and I, Tanya was his big uh, break and everything and everything I've seen him in since he's just, uh, he's just engaging in a way that I, I, I don't know. What is it about him? What is his he's, process? How do you get him? What's he is just nothing short of spectacular. I mean, and that's, you know, that's why it's like Eastwood, you know, stars in the Eastwood movie. Spike Lee puts him on, like, you just can't miss with this guy. He's so, mm-hmm. um, He's so funny and smart and game. Um, And, you know, with something like this, it was, uh, you know, I just was, I I felt so grateful to have him. And he came and, you know, working with Jason Clark, the role that he's in, you you get Jason Clark just like manhandling him and just mauling him (laughs) every way possible, you know. And I literally, there's the scene where like Jason Clark's, you know, drowning him in the like bathtub or whatever. And I literally, as soon as we started rolling on that one, I thought, Jesus Christ, Clark's going to kill him, you know. (laughs) Um, and then you know paul pops up and he gets his head out of the water and he's like all right let's go again and i'm like i I love that scene too because i don't think i've ever seen an interrogation scene in a movie where the or at least i don't remember one where the the person being interrogated is more than willing to answer the questions but (laughs) he's not really being allowed to it was so funny i was literally howling when we were shooting a film at a certain point somebody looked over at me and they're like dude why are you laughing this is super disturbing and weird you know (laughs) no it's a great dynamic it's something that like jonathan said you never see on there especially when he gets back and you know this is the mark of a great performance when you have the water shot staring up at him he's got all this expression of terror but also like bemusement <laughs> like it's just it's it's such an unusual scene uh but it's just delightful i loved it yeah paul 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 is, is such a gamer he's such a wonderful performer and it was so funny um you know, the specifics of his character as we're as we were talking about it, you know, prior to him coming to set, 
you have all, you know, so much of this takes place online, right? So you're, it's like people are sitting there behind their computers and the interaction is written rather than verbal, as is the nature of, you know, a lot of our communication these days. And Paul and I hit on the idea where it was like, what if this dude's a mumbler? Where he's like, you know, as he's, talking, he's like saying this shit aloud, you know, to, to himself and then talking to himself. And as soon as Paul had that, he just ran with it. And then, you know, you add a ferret and how can you go wrong? <laughs> yeah. So he's got an outlet. He's got someone to, to quote, talk to. He's got an uh, outlet uh, partner, man. He's got a ferret. That was, uh, you know, you were talking about this torture scene that there were there were elements that felt like Zero Dark Thirty in this movie. I mean, especially with, you know, Jason Clark's, uh, you know, Jason Clark's uh, being in it. And then just the fact that they're looking for someone that is using some really difficult uh, encryption methods or just li- or just looking or they're just hard to find in general. And you have to find those really small things. He he seems to be able to do it the old school way by just going in and pretending like he's somebody who's, who uses the Silk Road and everything. But it looks like uh, behind the scenes, uh, the FBI is doing some pretty good work that we're not, we don't really get to see here, but is it, is, was it really hard to find this guy or was, or was he so brash about what he was doing uh, that it, it actually didn't take long to find. Him. Well, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a good and complicated question. I think in a weird way, what it was, was there was a, there's a simplicity to the genius of the idea where you take Tor, which enables you to place these orders, you know, online in an anonymous fashion and you use Bitcoin as the currency, right? Mm-hmm. So the combination of, anonymity and cryptocurrency like that's the genius of the idea and it's it's actually a very simple idea blending these two things but what it did was and i think in a weird way it's why ross had the book thrown at him the real ross as a human being and and god Mm -hmm. to me i think is actually a, a terribly draconian sentence you know the real guy is serving double life plus 40 without the possibility of parole which is significantly worse than what uh el chapo's sentence was for example oh wow so it's um, and 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 not not to sort of excuse it or or give any kind of like easy explanation to it i mean if you have a loved one who um died from drugs purchased on silk road i'm you know deeply uh kind of and painfully empathetic to that so it's not uh, it, it this is not an easy kind of morality judgment one way or another but you know, it's complicated. I guess that that's why it's, that's why to me it was rich and fertile material for a film. But as soon as Ross had the idea to do that and then to outsource, instead of using a physical server to, you know, to be, to outsourcing it to, to a you know, server farm in Iceland, essentially, then you literally physically can't trace it. And so what this guy did overnight was he completely changed the war on drugs. Suddenly, like the postman is a dope dealer inadvertently mm-hmm. and like, you know, yeah. doesn't know it, but like that's who's bringing this to your house. And so it was so such a sort of transformative moment and law enforcement in general was caught so flat footed that it required this massive mobilization to find him. And yet on the other hand, there is this sort of like brashness and arrogance to, to Ross where it's like, okay, I'm beating the system. You know, people haven't found me there. You know, they haven't found me yet. They're not going to find me. And, to, you know, it's such that he ends up getting arrested at the, you know, the public library in San Francisco, yeah. you know, <laughs> so it's like, it's a weird, it's a weird combination. And, and, and that was what was, I think sort of so true about this story uh, you know, so, or so fascinating rather about the story all the way through is all of it is very complex uh, in terms of the the morality and sort of what was happening in the characters that were defined by it. Yeah, we see that in the movie that uh, Ross seems a little uh, disturbed that his creation is, uh, uh, you know, bringing, you know, there's, there's the story of the 16-year-old kid who uh, died uh, taking taking drugs bought off a silk road. And it looks like it does affect him a lot. You mentioned the, his sentencing and everything. I think, 
I think if you ask most lawyers about this question, there it's not so much that this guy doesn't deserve to get punished, but there's just not a consistency uh, with sentencing with a lot of, of similar crimes and everything. And you're saying he's got a worse sentence than El Chapo. Yeah. And, and you know, what's, what's I think tragic about that in, in, in human terms is for good or ill, this was kind of a work of genius that, that this, that this kid created. And, um, you know, it ended up being the gift of the, or, or the, you know, the product of the first half of his life. But uh, I don't know, I guess as a human being, I'm just a believer in, in, in second chances. You know, I've failed and, and made mistakes, you know, countless times. And, and just the notion that, um, you know, this, this kid is going to, you know, condemned to die in prison uh, and never have a second shot is, is tragic to me. I like that coda in the movie of the, the VO of him saying that, I guess at his sentencing hearing yeah, uh, yeah. where, where he puts that in, in very articulate context of like, look, I, you know, I'm acknowledging what happened here, but also, you know, let me live out the rest of my days and, and try to, you know, do some good and that kind of thing. And I think that is a, a nice contextual coda to that um, rather than just demonizing uh, this this whole process because yeah he does break bad in a sense right he yeah. becomes the Walter White character uh, especially with the decisions that he makes uh, with with you know personal decisions but also you can tell how that weighs on him you can tell that he's not a quote bad guy right it's it's all it's the jason clark uh uh, monologue at the end of like shades of gray but black and white he's right in that gray Mm -hmm. and and i appreciate that as a character and i'm I'm glad you you fleshed that out uh within the 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 context of the movie well it's 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 interesting that you bring up that specific point about the voice you know the final voiceover um it was it was it was a fascinating process. My editor Greg O'Brien um, and I went through all of Ross's, um, you know, the chat logs and the diaries and, and you know his commentary at sentencing, um, you know, all of his words basically that existed. And we really wrestled with what to leave the viewer with. We had a version of it again, all taken from his words. That was the kind of brash, defiant, you know, unbowed. Um, kind of punk rock uh, <laughs> on the system, you know, ethos thing. And it felt like, you know what, the final words that this guy kind of made in public was, was, were those pleading for, um, I guess a second chance, you know? And so, mm-hmm. and so that, that, that was heartbreaking and, um, and, and an interesting kind of unexpected way to go. So we finally ended up choosing the latter rather than the former after, after, you know, recording it both ways, screening it both ways for different audiences. And, and, and finally that was the, that was the decision we made. God, it's hard to make a movie Tiller, right? Like you have to go through <laughs> all this bullshit. It's you got to do, I, my God, how does a movie ever get fucking made? You got to go through test audiences and then you got to do editing two versions. You got to shoot two. It's crazy that you made this movie. I'm proud of you. It's so funny that you say that. It it, it really is true. Every time I, and as a movie goer and, you know, audience member, I'm, I'm sort of so rarely critical of things because it's because I know this was an all out war for anyone to ever get one frame of anything, <laughs> much less like finish it and get it out into the world. And, and, and it really is. It literally is a miracle every time a movie hits the screen because, you know, so many things have to line up and you have to get so lucky uh, to do it. So, so I'm, I'm super grateful and, and uh, you know, privileged to have the chance and, and psyched to be bringing it into the world. A uh, couple of other actors uh, in this uh, that I'm interested in. Uh, obviously, Jimmy Simpson has sort yeah. of become a, a legendary character actor uh, at this point. Uh, and uh, and uh, Daryl Brick Gibson, who uh, I think uh, anybody who's watched Barry, um, <laughs> uh, there's, uh, you know, I mean, he's he's great. And, uh, and Alexander Shipp, uh, 
can can you uh can you uh, elaborate on on their casting and uh, how you, where you got them yeah absolutely all all of all, every single one of those um you know actors was just such a gift um jimmy simpson it's so funny literally as soon as the first like frame of dailies came in my editor called me and he's like put this guy in every movie you do for the rest of your life no matter <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and he was such, and Jimmy was such a pleasure to work with because he's so, um, he's like such a finely, uh, tuned instrument and he would say, okay, give me the most like micro adjustments possible. Like I love, like you want a line reading, give me a line reading. Great. I love a line reading. And it was kind of like, he was so, um, will, you know, malleable and willing to be directed and so kind of like brave and open with it. It was such a pleasure to work with him. Um, and, uh, and he, and, you know, he also has a brother who, um, I forget exactly who he works for. It's, you know, NSA or, or somebody along those lines, some sort of, you know, um, access to sort of sensitive security information. And as soon as he said that, I was like, dude, get your brother on the phone because like he just became an accidental tech consultant for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and, and Jimmy was so like wonderful and gracious with like, you know, bringing his brother into the equation and, and cause I'm a big believer in, uh, and I have kind of an army of tech consultants generally the way I work because um, you know, as a documentary guy, you want the authenticity and specificity of it. So every single thing like that was a gift. Um, and Daryl Britt Gibson, again, just amazing, amazing performer. I can't wait to do more work with him. It was so amazing. Once he got on set and I saw him in there with Jason and like the first scene they did together, I was like, dude, these guys are doing 48 hours. This is like unbelievable. I could, I could <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. off with these two guys, you know? And I walk up to Daryl, you know, after the first take or to and i'm like how you doing man he's like man i'm hitting my threes and i'm gonna be hitting them the whole time i'm here and i just <laughs> like, oh, God, man. um and then uh and then alexander ship it was so amazing too because when you're dealing with um you know you have this very with a with a with a film like this, you have a v very limited amount of prep time, and um, you know everybody's got complicated schedules that you're trying to jigsaw, getting them in and out, you know, between other movies that they're doing or TV shows or whatever. And so there's a very finite amount of time to have the deep relationship building that you need to have um, kind of credible, lived-in, uh, believable performances. And obviously with Nick and Alexandra, they had this sort of long, um, rich history, you know, love Simon. Mm -hmm. And so they, I knew that by putting them together, they would be able to draw on the, the intimacy that they already had and bring the relationship between the two characters together. And I also thought, you know, hopefully it's fun for audiences too, that were, you know, people that were fans of love Simon to like see the repairing of these two, you know, all grows up. Yeah. She's great. Uh, uh, tragedy girls was, I think was one of the first times I saw her and just, just like, she's amazing. And, and so fun to work with, you know, she was yeah. very, um, just kind of like a ray of light on the set where, you know, playful and funny and, you know, teasing the, the director of photography and just, just a real pleasure to work with. Yeah. And Jimmy, Jimmy Simpson's got one of my favorite scenes, a smaller scene where it's just when Jason Clark brings that folder in or that file in and Jimmy Simpson's just like, yeah, just put that, just, just, just put that somewhere. I won't look for it later. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually, that's actually Will Rop, who's, uh, who's, uh, who plays, um, Jason's boss, um, uh, this like younger millennial boss in that, in that particular scene, who's a, who's an amazing young performer too, yeah. actually in the, uh, opposite Ben Affleck in, 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 in his recent film. And is like such a funny, talented guy. And I love that mustache that we ended up with on him, you know, that's uh, fabulous. Uh, oh yeah. He's great. He's, yeah. he, he, he was a treat. He was a, he was an unexpected, uh, you know, pleasure and treat just kind of hilarious. Like, and anytime you can get Jason Clark, uh, stirred up and crazy and infuriated, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's Jonathan, are you talking about the scene after that scene though yeah i am it's the where he walks in with the fbi oh yes 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 i'm sorry i, I know no, no worries no worries you know my movie better than me you're recently there's there's two file scenes everybody everybody so far has been a pleasure to work with who are the dicks on this <laughs> uh mm -hmm. set yeah, i mean i really right. want 
No, here's the the sort of the dickish enterprise in it was really was me managing kind of I I, I had this like insane year um, where I had multiple projects that were going simultaneously. I was doing um, a series for Amazon called The Last Narc. I was doing The Night Stalker for Netflix and doing this film simultaneously. You know, you sit around your entire life and you're like, They'll never all get greenlit at the same time. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they did. And I was just in like an absolute dead panic over like what to do and how to survive it, and whether I could manage it. And it was, um, but I also felt like, gosh, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to have, you know, these amazing um, projects and, and kind of canvases to, to work on. So, uh, you know, I called my, my, my brother, um, uh, and I said, what do you think? And he's like, dude, saddle up and suck it up. You're getting yeah. out of the cannon. And, uh, <laughs> uh, that's what I did. Um, you had mentioned uh, up at the top that this this movie uh, feels like, you know, just sort of an extension of other movies that you have done recently. Now, uh, I hate to admit that I have not seen a couple of these movies, but it does, it does feel like the seven five and operation Odessa sort of fit into this, uh, real world, real crime, uh, narrative and everything. And I was wondering if that's, if that's what you're referring to when you're saying that this is sort of the, uh, you know, sort of an extension of those. Yeah. How one, how one spills into another. I, I think very much it is, um, you know, it, like my entire professional life and, and, and I guess career has kind of been looking at the thin and sometimes porous boundary um, between cops and crooks. And in the 7-5, it's, you know, this crew, this crew of corrupt cops marauding their way through New York in the 90s. In Operation Odessa, it's the story of these three crazy gangsters, a, you know, a Russian mobster, a Miami playboy, and a Cuban narco who sell a, uh, a submarine to the Cali cartel for $20 million. And, uh, and then, you know, on the cop side of things, there's the last narc and, and mm-hmm. night stalker. Um, and in a weird way, all of it is, I think that they're kind of portraits and pieces of the underworld and explorations of, I guess just the underbelly of America in, in a fundamental way. And so this felt like a really natural um, addition to that. And, and I don't know why exactly, you know, my wife teases me about, you know, she's like, you know, your, your compass, most people's compass is pointed to true North. Yours is pointed to true crime. Um, and, but, but, it, but it's true. You know, I, I do find, I do find it, um, riveting i guess um because i think it's kind of as close as we get to um war maybe in a civilian society and so when you're people who are and this is true whether you're a gangster or whether you're uh you know a cop or undercover cop or whatever every time those people walk out the door the stakes are potentially life and death and so the quotient for drama is just so high you do a great job with the true crime stuff, by the way. I watch Night Stalker, and um, I've read about him in the past, and I've seen other documentaries on him, and I've I I, I had never seen a lot of the stuff that you you had in that narrative, and you did a great job of just not, uh, I guess, glorifying him at all, which is you know a problem that some true crime docs have with these kind of things. Um, it, it felt it felt very personal, and it was just and and also just terrifying. I. What was it? What was that like making that? Well, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was fascinating and it was kind of harrowing and horrifying at yeah. the same time. You know, on the, on the one hand you had, like I had access to these, you know, this astonishing array of, of materials. So it was hundreds, if not thousands of crime scene photos. And, and, you know, some people have, have sort of noted the, uh, I guess the sort of brutal nature of some of the imagery that's in there, but by comparison to what we had at our disposal, it, that's a very carefully yeah. selected curated set of images that are in there. Um, and so it's like literally just being exposed to that level of kind of um, the reality of the, of the horror and kind of gruesomeness was, was it was an intense experience. Um, and, and it becomes this, you know, with all of these projects, with both of these projects, um, it's a very fine line because, you know, you are 
telling these stories, which need to be um, gripping and, and, and sort of consumable and fascinating. And yet at the same time, you never want to cross the line into being mm-hmm. exploitative or cheap or tawdry in any way. So you're constantly kind of like having to recalibrate, okay, this is fascinating, but is this off-putting or is this, um, you know, are we crossing a line here? And so with the Ramirez story, it was, you know, and that story is so strange because this guy has had this, you know, once apprehended, has had this like surreal afterlife getting kind of turned into this, you know, sex symbol and object of desire. Yeah. And, um, and so it was super important to me not to glamorize or lionize him in any way uh, and to make audiences like part of the reason why I selected those, um, you know, the sort of, the horror and specificity of those crime scene photos is to make you realize, Hey, this is real. This is not, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and to sort of make us confront our own, uh, you know, what is it about all of us that are sort of so fascinated by these kinds of stories and that level of depravity, you know, we, we're all complicit in it to some extent, um, by engaging in it. And so it's, you know, hopefully giving you a bit of pause and making you like, man, why am I so fascinated? What's your background, Uh, Tiller? Um, I was a, you know, my, when I grew, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and my dad was in the district attorney's office. It was depicted in Errol Morris' film, The Thin Blue Line. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And so as a kid, he would take me around to like the courthouses and jails and precincts or whatever. And uh, I think the notion was that I would be scared straight, but instead <laughs> I was like, dude, these are my people. You know? <laughs> and, and so, you know, from there I ended up, you know, becoming a crime reporter because it was, it was, um, cause I could hang around, you know, in those places with those people and mm. speak the language. And then weirdly enough, it was actually Errol Morris years later, once I was a reporter who I did a profile of, um, and I had this incredible evening with him and, um, you know, while well, he had, he was promoting some film and, you know, got saddled with me at the end of the day for his interviews. And he's like, dude, I'm so sick of these interviews. You want to get a steak and a bottle of wine? Nice. I thought, There's nothing more on earth that I want to do than like get a steak and a bottle of wine, Morris, you know? And, and we had this kind of fascinating, you know, dinner together, evening together. And at the end of it, he turned over and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you're either going to spend the rest of your life writing about people like me, or you're going to try your hand at this. And I literally quit my job at the newspaper the next morning. And I was Holy like, shit. Oh. That's a crazy story. It's, it's, it's true. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reconnecting with him because for him it was probably a throwaway evening that he you know doesn't course in my entire adult life wow wow that's amazing and so now and now you're actually for for getting access to all these crime scene photos and and the information and you mentioned that you were familiar with narcs and and uh and uh cis and stuff like that like, how far are you embedded into this? Is it is it as a documentarian or a filmmaker? Or is it more that you had that life when you were a reporter? Well, it, it's it's all again. It's sort of like it's one thing has bled into another, and so mm. you know it was really interesting actually with regards to the you know the narc and sort of CI thing. I was shooting this this Amazon series, The Last Narc. Um, which, which, you know, tells the story of the murder of this DEA agent in in Mexico in 1985 by these cartel guys. But the guy that ran this investigation, Hector Boreas, is this fascinating, you know, larger than life kind of gunslinger narc. And Mm -hmm. I was shooting these two things and I was like, dude, Jason Clark has got to meet this guy. And this guy has got to meet Jason Clark. So I like (laughs) sent him off together out in Riverside to like go get a taco. And, um, and, you know, smart actors being what they are, what they are, Jason Clark clocked the fact that Hector, who's, who's the, the before, you know, retired DEA agent, had this like amazing um, kind of, you know, Mexican style belt buckle with a rooster on the front of it. And when he came to set, he was wearing that belt buckle. And I was like, nice. this guy. <laughs> anything else, guys? I know, Bar- uh, Barrett, you wanted to talk about uh, Bernie a little well, bit. OK, so you mentioned the, you know, growing up in Dallas. I, I notice, you know, obviously with Night Stalker and where Silk Road started, and of course with your affiliation with Bernie and Richard Linkletter's uh, direction in that movie, you seem like a Texas dude, man. I like am a uh, Texas dude. <laughs> you guys are all like a like a kind of a community there, right? 
Uh, it's so funny, you know, like wherever you go, if you're a Texan, it's like somehow you magnetize to other Texans, whether you like it or not. It's like, you know, magnets, they, they, they pull each other together. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I don't know. I think there is something interesting about Texas where it's one of those weird kind of outlier places in America that has a strong local cultural identity. So, um, mm. you know, you get these crazy ass characters and, in wild ass stories that come out of Texas. And so, um, you know, and all of us, I think in some fundamental way, you, you live in our childhoods, wherever it is, you know, whatever the sort of formative stuff is, sure. you never get that far from it, you know? So it, it, just briefly, because everybody should watch Silk Road because that, that movie rocks, but also tell these two, Jonathan and Chris, why they should watch Bernie because that movie rules. <laughs> it, no, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And, and I had a very minor part in, in that, but it's all a hundred percent linked later, but it's such a... Like that story is just, um, it's batshit crazy. If you it were to sure that story and sort of like, if you were in a writer's room and you pitched that story, you would immediately be fired for being like an incompetent moron. But because it's true, <laughs> it's so bonkers. And, and the, and the, 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 the performances are just so captivating. And I, I just think Linklater's a genius. I'm such a fan, you know, from, from that first film on anything he ever does, man, I'll, I'll buy the ticket and take the ride. He's just yeah. brilliant. Uh, he's he's definitely one of the best for sure. Um, year after year, film, film after film, just keeps doing it, man. His own voice and his own vision, and you know, such an inspiration. No kidding. Uh, I have to ask one more question, practically about the uh, Silk Road, because it takes place in all these different environments. Uh, how much was shot on location? How much was set? And um, what do you prefer? Like you know that kind of thing. Like it, practically, how did this all work out? Yeah, great question. Um, what ends up happening is, and, and this is kind of like the default model for, for most movies nowadays, is you end up shooting the bulk of principal photography, oftentimes in places where there are tax incentives, so that you're able sure. to get you know rebates on that money, and your and your dollar goes further, right? You're able to get more mm-hmm. days or um, you know, whatever it is that you choose is almost always shoot days with directors. They're like obsessive about, cause that's all you get is just sort of time. Right. And, and time. Yeah. so, and, and there's never enough of it, no matter what you do. So the bulk of it was shot in um, New Mexico. And then there was kind of a movable feast of splinter units in Austin, in Baltimore, in San Francisco. Um, so that you're able to, um, and I think it was sort of the big short. I think that that Adam McKay kind of pioneered this uh, initially, um, or, or sort of mastered it. At, you know what all of us you know now know and kind of references. Then you're able to to give something the scope and geographical um, diversity, and yet you're still able to anchor the production by shooting it primarily in one locale, so it's as, as efficient as possible. Oh, that's hmm. fascinating. That's fascinating. So you give you almost. I don't want to call it a trick, but you almost trick the, the, the viewer's mind into saying, oh, this is totally Baltimore, even if it's on set in yeah, New well, Mexico or something like that. Exactly. Because if you think about it, the interior of a house or an office building or, or you know anything that's an interior, by and large, they're not kind of geographically specific. So whether you're shooting in Canada or Dallas or Austin or San Francisco, interiors are kind of interiors. And then- mm. You know, once all of a sudden you step outside into the street, that's all you need is a couple of shots to really sell it. And it creates this, you know, enveloping illusion that the entire thing was shot there by, you know, careful, um, you know, shot selection and editorial construction. You're able to sell the the movie magic, I guess. I've been asking this uh, question uh, a lot recently, but uh, what is your what was your toughest day uh, filming this movie? Probably the toughest day was I was with Jason Clark and Katie Azelton in the aquarium when they are taking their daughter um, to the aquarium, kind of having this you know marital fight over his uh, you know the upset the fact that they've got a kid that's got uh, a learning disability and um, mm-hmm. you know this the kind of personal dramas of a marriage. And what ended up happening is the the kid who Lexi Raves is a terrific actor, um, actually in the Avengers movie and you know among other things. Um, that day she was totally uh, uh, sick and so couldn't 
be in the scene. And so we're sitting there and it's like, okay, my God, what are we going to do? We have to get the scene. And so we had the stand-in actor at the time who was, uh, you know, just there as a double. And I was like, okay, Jason, Katie, get over here. We're rewriting the scene. All the scenes that the, all the lines that the kids were going to say, we're going to figure this out. So we literally rewrote the scene together very quickly and mm-hmm. we used the stand-in actor instead of the actual actor because she was sick that day. And so we had to like figure out how to reconstruct it all, you know, under a very tight time frame. Mm-hmm. And everybody was so game to do it. It, it ended up miraculously working. So. Wow. <laughs> Had to use uh, some silhouette, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. And then carefully stage it in such a way that, and it was so funny when we finished the movie, I told the story to the editor and he's like, bullshit. Isn't that interesting? Like that's not a place where I would, I would typically be looking for you know, that kind of, uh, you know, a change in actor, a stunt double or anything like that. So you, you've already put it in the viewer's mind that there's this, you know, there's his daughter is in the scene somehow. And then, and then, you know, and then you just sort of just like, you know, just do this expert type type of like, let's just throw that under the rug. This is not about her this is you know i mean it's about her but it's not you know that's that's what filmmaking is it's basically like one catastrophe after another befalling you through the entire thing and then having to like <laughs> improvise your way out of it and hopefully um, you know make it make it make it credible to the audience by the end but that that really is the truth of the matter by the way uh, all the scenes with uh jason clark and katie azel i that that whole storyline was was fascinating. I, I like how they, they were really good together. And, uh, that final scene with them, uh, got yeah. me a little teary eyed. So, yeah, uh, she, she, she's a, she's a beautiful, um, powerful actor and yeah. the two of them together. And that, and that final scene, you know, really got me too. uh, you yeah. know, shooting it. And it's, so. it's really funny only really knowing her. Well, I think I've seen her in a few other things, but the main thing I know her from is the league. Right. So right. it's really interesting it's seeing her. <laughs> yeah. She's she very is, different. She's a real talent. She's a real. Yeah, talent. she is. Uh, anything else guys? I just want to mention the tillers. You are so smart. I can I, just, you're very <laughs> smart. And this has been a pleasure. And can we talk to you like when your next film comes out? Absolutely. I will be back. Like I said, I'm a fan. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh my goodness. Thank you, This is a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, All right. We would like to thank uh, Tiller uh, for his time. The movie is Silk Road. Uh, It comes out on digital, on demand, and in theaters February 19th and Blu-ray and DVD on February 23rd. Um, and so, yeah, go, go, go see that movie. Go see it. It's good. It's really good. Um, but that's going to do it for this interview. It's Chris Atkins and Jonathan Watkins and Barrett share. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com.